On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to be talking about autism. We've heard so much about autism in the last number of years, last number of months specifically here in Ontario. And one of the things that we're hearing is how many more people are in need of services because how many more people are being diagnosed with autism. Question is why? Well, we're going to be talking to someone who has been doing some study on this, who has just written a study that suggests that maybe it's not that more people have autism, but another reason altogether. Also, we will be catching up with McMaster's old, new, new, old, I can't keep track, but current head coach, Steph Potasek, whose season with the team that he's back with, the Marauders, begins Sunday in Guelph. We'll catch up with Steph as well. Stay with us. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. It seems in recent years there has been an explosion in the number of people diagnosed with autism which you would think presumably means that something is changing in our environment. Something's changing in our diet. Something's changing in our genes. Something's changing somewhere. Something is happening that is causing more and more kids to be born with autism, somewhere on the autism spectrum. But what if that's not really true? What if that's not true? Despite all the people who are being diagnosed with autism, what if it's not true? What if it's not really an increase in autism per se, but a broadening of the definition of the diagnosis that's now blurring the lines between people who truly are autistic and the rest of the population? That's what a new study out of Montreal is suggesting, that maybe we ought to look at this, that maybe it's the definition of autism, it's the broadening, it's the diagnosis that has changed. I want to bring in one of the authors of that study. Her name is Dr. Isabelle Soulier. She's at the University of Quebec at Montreal. Uh, her research focuses on the study of the cognitive processes and brain mechanisms underlying the reasoning and learning of typical and autistic individuals. She joins us now. Uh, Dr. Soulier, thanks for doing this today. Hi. Uh, when I was in high school a few years ago, and it is a few years ago now, I hate to say how many years, but it's been a while now. Uh, my One of my very best friends had an autistic brother, and he was very clearly, it was ser- like, well, it was very autistic. You could obviously tell that he was dealing with some things. But he was the only autistic person that I knew I had ever met in my life, and I don't think that was unusual. And mm-hmm. now... I think the average person probably either knows, has met, or knows someone who is connected to five, six, seven autistic people. It, it would be very uncommon if you didn't have some sort of connection to someone who's being diagnosed as autistic today, correct? Yes, yes. Now the, uh, the prevalence is about 1% of uh, kids now have an autism diagnosis. And when you were young, I bet it was like uh, four or five out of a thousand. It, it was 10, very thousand. rare. It was very <laughs> yes. rare. Yes, it was. And what you, you're describing, the, your uh, autistic friend was probably, uh, he probably had a prototypical autism. And what, you know, what, what is what we consider is the core of uh, autistic characteristics. Whereas now people with less and less typical symptoms uh, receive an autism diagnosis for many reasons because the criteria have changed over years because now we recognize that someone can be autistic without any intellectual disability and also because we changed the practice of diagnosing uh, because now um, the the person needs uh, to be less and less different from the average person to be considered as uh, autistic. 
Can we back up for just one second? Because I think it's yes. probably important. In, in without giving the full university diagnosis, <laughs> the, 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 run, the brief explanation of what is autism as a disease or as a, as a condition? Like, what, what? How would we define what autism is? Okay, so um, the the official diagnosis is someone who has um, difficulties with uh, engaging in social. Re- relationships and building social reciprocity with other people and also someone who has uh, repetitive behaviors and really focused interests. And there... That's what we considered autism. And there are a number of very commonly accepted uh, symptoms that people would have that you would identify, then you would see someone and go, maybe that's something we need to look at. Mm -hmm. There's a list of of symptoms. And I would say that now teachers, uh, um, school professionals, medical doctors, uh, psychologists, they are more and more aware of those red flags. Absolutely. And and people are getting more, um, uh, they, they, they receive a, a diagnosis earlier um, uh, than before because of that. How many, typically, how many symptoms or how many signs would you have to exhibit before someone would say, maybe we need to question this? Is it, is it can you have one symptom and someone says we should no, get this checked no, out? No, no, no. Uh, we need, a, it, there's a list. Of, a, of, of about 12 and we need the six to be uh, considered uh, autistic but how do we apply these uh, uh, symptoms list is uh, it can change from one professional to the other let's say have less interest in the, his peers so less interest how do you define <laughs> objectively right what is less interest and because, as you say, because teachers are now aware, because doctors and nurses and neighbors and everyone else are now aware, I'm guessing that a whole lot more kids are being sent somewhere to, to a doctor or to someone to say, I think there may be autism or something on the autism spectrum here. Would, would you agree that there's a lot more people being checked for it now? Yes, yes, yes. People are getting um, more uh, aware and more suspicious and more rapidly than before. Uh, let's see, only 20 years ago, people wouldn't know what autism was, so they would not refer the kids for uh, an evaluation. They would just be different in many cases. Yes. Doctor, your study, as I looked over this, seems to suggest that part of the reason here, or maybe a big part of the reason, is that the threshold by which doctors are diagnosing people with autism seems to be getting less and less. So you now, you don't have to be as different or have as many of the symptoms or whatever to be now diagnosed. Is that correct? Yes. What we did in our study is that we looked over years in the, in the scientific papers that are published. Are the groups of autistic participants and uh, typical participants, are they um, as different as they were before in their performances on different tests? And the answer is no. The, the, the groups are getting closer and closer. So the, the difference, let's say, in emotional recognition, the difference in uh, cognitive flexibility is getting uh, thinner and thinner between a group of autistic persons and a group of non-autistic persons. So this is across research groups across uh, countries, across uh, scientific domains, uh, the trend is there. So we, the, 
Yes. Well, we often hear people talk about the autistic spectrum. So could this not just be accounted for by the fact that you're either, you don't have to be, you know, 100%, this is a bad way to describe it, but like on the scale of zero to a hundred, you don't have to either be a hundred or zero. You could be somewhere in the middle. Could that not explain why there are more people because they're on the spectrum? What is, I don't even know what that means to be honest, but could that explain it? Yes, it could in, in part explain because, um, what we considered autism uh, 20, 30, 40 years ago was much more narrow than it is now. So the, the, our conception, our diagnosis criteria, and our diagnostic practices are broadening and broadening over the years. That's what we show in our study. And when I say I don't really know what the spectrum means, I understand what they mean by the autistic spectrum. What I'm saying is the part I don't quite get is at what point are you simply a little bit different from what people would categorize as normal? And at what point do you actually enter the spectrum? And do we have any objective way to measure that? No, we don't have any objective way. We are trying to put a kind of a limit uh, okay, so beyond that, we're, you're considered an autistic person, and below that, you are not. But this threshold varied um, across the years, and it varies also from uh, one professional team to the other. And uh, it, it also changed in uh, public knowledge also, wh- where is this limit? And as as a researcher or as a clinician, we have to ask ourselves, okay, where where is the um, the best limit we can put? Because if we put an autism diagnosis to someone who is not that different from other people, then we put in in the same basket <laughs> all people who are quite different, and then it's hard to design programs that are met for meant for for them do you believe so different do you believe there are people right now in 2019 who have been diagnosed as being on the autism spectrum who are not autistic at all uh yes probably probably um and sometimes uh and it's always by people who had good intentions of course they want to help the person and the person uh, feel different or she has problems in their relationships. But sometimes we we say autism and it's an, maybe another condition would be uh, a best fit or it's simply someone who doesn't fit in the neurotypical mold. The co-author of this study with you wrote this, and I thought it was a fascinating sentence. He says, if this trend holds, the objective difference between people with autism and the general population will disappear in less than 10 10 years. years. The definition of autism may get too blurry to be meaningful, trivializing the condition because we're increasingly applying the diagnosis to people whose differences from the general population are less pronounced. That's that seems rather troubling because then if in certain time if we're all essentially just on a spectrum somewhere, how do you possibly create those programs to treat anybody unless they are clearly at the very very far end? How do you how do you do that? <laughs> yeah. So from a uh, research perspective, at some point it won't be uh, possible to find significant differences or something something that characterize the whole autism spectrum because people in this spectrum will be more and more different from each other. 
So the variability will be huge even within this autism spectrum. I think the, 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 the way to go with that is by, okay, it's, it's by trying to do some subgrouping or finding some common characteristics in subgroup uh, on the autism spectrum. And then you can design intervention or education programs that are meaningful to these people. Dr. Isabel Soulier from the University of Quebec at Montreal. Really appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for doing this. Thank you. Uh, you can read this study, by the way. Uh, go to Science Daily, sciencedaily.com, and look up, is it autism? The line is getting increasingly blurry. And the question, why does this matter? Because if you don't have someone in your family who's autistic, you're saying, well, you know, why does it matter? Look at what's going on in the province right now. There's so much money that needs to be spent on programs for autism. The government at one point tried to cut the money back, tried to change the, maybe not cut it back, but certainly diffuse it and spend it to more people and not add more money to it. But there's great need. But what happens if all the people who are now saying we need money for autism help aren't really autistic or could be helped in a different way? And the truly, the people who really are at the far end of the spectrum who really need the help aren't getting it now. It's, it's a really difficult thing. It's a paper worth reading. ScienceDaily.com. Is it autism? You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The McMaster Marauders football team. School hasn't even started. They have started. They have started. They've been on the field for a while now. First game this Sunday afternoon in Guelph against the Guelph Griffins and back on the sideline wearing the headset, I presume anyway, uh, unless he's changed his tactics. I don't know. Maybe he's going without the headset now. He's going all Ron Lancaster on us now, maybe. I don't know. Uh, Steph Potasik, who is now back as head coach. Steph, congratulations and welcome back. Thanks for having me. It's great to be back. Is it easy to come back? Uh, this place, lots of new buildings and faces, but uh, core values and, and lots of good people has not changed. Do you, I mean, honestly, is it as simple as just stepping back into your old office and picking up as if nothing had changed? Uh, I mean, there's some new faces and it's all about relationships and and, uh, uh, getting to know some of the talented people that have have come aboard since I've been gone in in all areas of the campus and and, uh, is is elbow grease. And so uh, transition certainly is smoother and and certainly lots of fun, uh, but there is some transition. How much work is it when you come into a new place anywhere, even if it's somewhere you know and you're starting the program now? How how much work is involved in doing that? Uh, I mean, it, it's it's a passion. So uh, you, you you work as hard as you can every single day, and you get to bed and you're exhausted, but you pop out of bed the next day, and it, even if the days are long, somehow the weeks and months and years go by real real fast, uh, and so. Hard is the wrong word. It's so much fun, and and it uh, uh, getting ready for this first one on on uh, Sunday uh, seems like we've been here for uh, a long time. But it it can't believe it's already uh, time to start this season. Let's mention that passion for a second, because your wife once upon a time told me a story, and I think I followed it up with you once upon a time. But you apparently around in your family are legendary for having scraps of paper all over the house that you at all times of the day and night just write plays down, so that you can bring those into the playbook. And so, are you still doing that? Uh, my wife would tell you X's and O's on pieces of paper are not uh, hugs and kisses in my household. <laughs> uh, they are not. They are not. Uh, certainly. Uh, uh, little bits of uh, uh, 
uh, insight come at any time, and, and we do uh, we do jot them down, and, and it's uh, that's one of the fun parts about this great staff and, and having really intelligent men like Scott Brady and Corey Grant and Todd Galloway to bounce ideas off of. Uh, most of my pieces of paper are at the office right now. But when you pop out of bed or you're just about to fall asleep, like all of us do at one time, and have this moment of clarity and brilliance, and then you jot something down, how often the next morning when you look at that do you say, man, that was absolutely a just a brilliant piece of work, and how often do you think I should have just slept through that? Yeah, yeah, the latter is the more likely outcome <laughs> of that process. Uh, uh, I can't, jo- or uh, sorry, June Jones, uh, his favorite saying when he watches bad football is, looks like someone stayed up too late uh, this week, and uh, uh, I think well-rested and balanced is a, is a good idea for all of us, and, and June was so laid back, he, he kind of understood that better than most. One of the things that I imagine would be a bit of a challenge for you coming back here, even though you do know the campus and do know everything about Mac pretty well, is there's a lot of these kids that you're going to be coaching this year that are not really well known to you because they were either brought in here or coached when you were away. How do you deal with that? Uh, sp- spring ball and and, uh, and and getting to watch them and go. And, and uh, actually, most of these assistants uh, are uh, lifers. And, and so... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I don't have many blind spots when I got guys like Jason Riley and uh, and Robbie Underhill. People that have been here decades, Al Ananuk, and, and so uh, we was brought up to speed pretty quick by all of them. And and uh, uh, the nice thing is that the names always change, and every four or five years you are dealing with new student athletes, and and so that's uh, part of the business is getting to know them quick and know their strengths and weaknesses and put them in good spots. I imagine it's also an advantage and nice thing that you may not know who all of them are, but I guarantee you they all know who you are. The uh, the success the program had uh, is is not so far away that the, the student athletes currently in house would not be aware of a Kyle Quinlan era that was pretty special. Uh, three Vanier Cup appearances in four years is is definitely something at least the veterans will know about. Because of that, do you have any regrets that you left and took your stab at the CFL and then going out to BC? Do you, do you look back at that and say, you know, I'm glad I did that? Or do you ever look at that and say, man, I, you know, I, I should have just stayed around and, and I could have been really comfortable here. The, uh, the big regret would have been that, uh, that recruiting class that Frank Costese and John B. He worked really hard on putting in place and the Ticat job came up at the 11th hour, and so not getting to see those student-athletes play was really, really hard. Fortunately, they're all in their fourth year and still here, and so I uh, haven't worked with them for six months now, and, and getting to see them through a season is, is definitely something that I would have regretted for my, my entire life, and I'm going to get to see them through a season. But if you hadn't gone and taken that stab at the Thai Cats and, and the pros and everything else, are you a kind of guy who would have sat there and wondered about that for a long time or always wondered about that? I, I don't regret it for one second. It was the best learning experience of my uh, coaching career and, and the mentors and uh, all the great people I crossed paths with. I, I wouldn't trade a day. Um, I'm certainly glad that I get to take those that learning and, and bring it back to this place which I is my home and so I can uh, take the best of a, a Kent Austin June Jones Blake Mill and, and, and try to uh, make McMaster better do you think you learn more with them and with the tie cats about X's and O's or did you learn more about philosophy and dealing with people and this the other stuff the peripheral stuff that goes on in coaching C- certainly in the in the first few months the X's and O's would have been the steep learning curve but over the long haul it, it is the people skills and 
such different leadership in, in all corners of that uh, Ticat organization. And, and again, UBC with, uh, with Blake Mill and, and how he rolls in youth sport was invaluable insight. And to your point, the, not the what, but just the how and the calm demeanor and, and all of it, uh, I think, makes you a better coach. And, and I mean, it was an interesting time because you arrived at the Ticats at a time when that franchise was going through some stuff and it wasn't always going well on the field and there was occasionally some chaos off the field. Um, is that tough for a guy who generally has had success throughout his career? Is, is it, is it, I don't know if the word is humbling. I don't know if that's the right word, but is it, is it difficult when you go to a situation and it's not working? Uh, I mean, it, sure it is, and it's a pressure cooker, and, and everybody in this business gets that uh, winning is a part of it. And so uh, in that circumstance, uh, I'm actually pleased that I, I, I got to go through some rough times, and, and I hope I can draw on uh, references from that era, and, and they speak the same way as my references from teams that went 11-0 and and won national championships. And it, it, it uh, it's not about how far you get, it's... Uh, uh, it's who you are on the journey and, and so uh, learn as much in all of those tough times as you do when you win. But was the Steph Potasic though, when you were going through that and having to deal with that, was the Steph Potasic the same Steph Potasic as when you're winning or did you uh, notice would, you were different? No, I, I would like to think so. And, and uh, I, I tell my student athletes, things go wrong. We're, we're all thumbs and, and it, what can we do better? And we look in the mirror, things go good. You're all fingers and you point out all the great things people are doing around you and, and I felt like that's how I lived my life in, in Ticat land and, and all lands. It's only been a couple of years since you've been gone, but I, I saw a story, Canadian Press did a story today about all the new coaches that are coming in. The Canadian football, university football, has changed a bunch even in the time you've been away. No question. that that uh, The young faces, it's great to see. There's uh, some brilliant young coaches, and, and uh, we have a couple of them, and, and Todd Galloway, Corey Grant, and Scott Brady, but there's... Uh, there's tons of movement and, and new guys brought on board uh, and Queens and Guelph have new young head coaches as does Windsor. And, and it's the changing of the guard. I guess it's inevitable. I, uh, my mentors like coach Marshall and coach Sheehan, they're not going to be here forever. So I'm certainly going to enjoy while they're still working in new sport. Enjoy when you talk about Greg Marshall, enjoy is in like beating him. Well, yeah, competing <laughs> with him and, and just, uh, uh, he, he, He's a fantastic coach and been great for youth sport football and student athletes across this province for uh, decades. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, appreciate the, the the rivalry. And and he certainly looks out for McMaster because I think he takes great pride in where the program has gotten to. He had a great piece in it, but. Uh, yeah, things will always change and evolve. It's not going to be like this forever. I know you got to go in just a sec, but you're getting a new, not a new, well, it's a new start, I guess. You're back. It's a, it's a, a new start in a sense. Do you have butterflies when you're back doing this? Do you, do you have any nerves going into the first game? <laughs> if you're passionate about something, those never go away. And so Sunday will be uh, not butterflies. It's like serpents and snakes in there, and it, it is. Uh, it's something you get addicted to, and, and if you get that eight to ten times a year, it's, it's special. And the relationships and the bonds in that environment are are things you uh, hold on to forever. It's one of, one of the reasons Gary Jeffries from Laurie said he never worked a day in his life. Last thing before I let you go. I think that if I asked you about expectations that you're going to say, well, in the room, we always have expectations to win and we always want to do well. And, all. and I, I mean, I get that uh, all that stuff is true and real. What do you perceive, though, coming back now? What do you perceive are the expectations that people have for you and for this team? 
Uh, we were uh, we made the playoffs every year I was gone. It's been a very good football team. The uh, uh, the uh, always want to push to to get to that Yates Cup and beyond, and and so we've been short of getting there for uh, since 2014, and and we want to start changing that. And we have a uh, quarterback that's coming into his own, and and 22 starters back, and. Um, our expectation is get better every single day, and we believe if we do that, we got a chance at uh, uh, the Yates Cup and beyond, and, and so win the day. That is Steph Potasek, new, old, new again head coach of the McMaster Marauders who play their first game Sunday, 1 o'clock against Guelph in Guelph. Uh, and then next weekend, next weekend they're back here in Hamilton at Mac to, uh, to kick off their home schedule. Steph, good luck this year. Thanks for doing this. Scott, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Uh, appreciate him doing that. Uh, you could you could hear in the background practice was going on. As I say, really hope that was not a key drill. <laughs> all this time I'm thinking, all right, if that's the play that screws up on Sunday and costs them the game, he may never come on the air and talk to us again. I've always wondered about that because people we do you know believe it or not, and not Steph to to his credit, he's never done this as far as I know, as far as I can recall. But there have been coaches over the years that I've dealt with as a sports writer and even on the radio, there have been coaches who, who have given me some serious salt and some serious stink eye at times because they somehow believe that something we've said or written has jinxed them and led them into a bad place or caused something bad to happen. I'm not making it up. There are people who truly believe the jinx thing. Not a ton. One, I'm not going to mention who it is right now, but I can tell you there was one particular case that comes to mind where I wrote about someone who was coming back from an injury and they didn't really want to talk about it because they would just, but it was, it was a significant injury and it was a significant player. So I wrote about it and the next day, the first game back, that player got injured again, same injury. And I thought the coach was going to walk over and strangle me. Thankfully he didn't. We're, we're good. But I thought he, he looked over from his spot and he gave me the look of absolute daggers. I was like, I I don't, I don't, I don't think I did anything. I'm pretty sure I'm not believing jinxes. He was not so sure at that moment. The Scott Radley show. Weekday evenings from six to eight on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.